Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Planeton and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong for those we love and mentor. Today we have a very special guest, the one and only Sarah Payton, certified trainer of nonviolent communication and neuroscience educator. She integrates brain science and uses resonant language to heal personal and collective trauma with exquisite gentleness. Sarah is sought-after expert who brings neuroscience expertise together with depth work, self-compassion, and transformative potential of language. She works with audiences internationally to create compassionate understanding of the effects of relational trauma on the brain and teaches people how words change and heal us. Yes. Sarah, <laughs> Sarah, welcome to oh, Flourish. Yeah. Thank you, Diane. I'm very happy to be here. Well, you're a very well-accomplished author with your third book coming out soon. And today we're going we're gonna to go deep into your workbook. It is called uh, Your Resonant Self-Workbook from Self-Sabotage to Self-Care. How? Wow, Sarah, you have been highly praised for navigating this <laughs> trauma and addiction world from healing uh, others and giving them personal freedom. Let's take a journey through this relational neuroscience. And, you know, everybody who's hearing this, listening, watching this workbook, I tell you, it's a work of art. It's a must-have for anyone out there needing the warmth and alignment to set you back on course. Mm. So, yeah, so welcome, Sarah. And tell us, tell us what, what brought this whole evolvement of the resonant self? Like, what led you to, you know, you, you did, did the book. And then you created this fantastic workbook. What led you to creating this for self-understanding and, and self-warmth? Well, I wrote the first book, Your Resonant Self, which has all kinds of wonderful guided meditations to take you into self-warmth and self-resonance. And I was traveling all over the world at that time, you know, pre-COVID. Now I travel all over the world by Zoom. But I was physically out there in the world and people were going, okay, this is all well and good, you know, what you're teaching, but I can't do it. And I was like, this has to make sense. This has to make sense from a brain perspective. So I started to think about how does our self-sabotage make sense? If we're thinking about our lives as being very, very sort of crafted by our early experiences, how would it make sense that I would not be able to have self-worth for myself? And I started to think about contracts and the ways that we contract with ourselves to do things if there's been trauma. And, and I started to ask people, is it possible that you've made an agreement with yourself not to have warmth for yourself under any circumstances in order to, and I was just like going, what could it be? In order to make your mom right, in order to decrease the burden that you placed on your family system, in order to be in integrity with God sometimes too. Like what, how, how are we trying to be in integrity when we're harsh with ourselves or cruel with ourselves? And that takes us into all kinds of considerations and explorations. 
Those contracts, I tell you, it's it's actually it's the first time I ever heard about how we make these contracts with ourselves. And, you know, how you've laid out the book, the workbook. I, I love the structure, the stories, the questionnaires, the guided meditations, discussions. I mean, I could really hear your voice as I read through it. Tell yes. us. Yeah. Tell us, what does it really mean to be um, your resonant self? What it really means is that we begin to understand. I was driving yesterday and I was thinking, everybody needs to understand that we all have all of the equipment we need for (laughs) (laughs) self-warmth. It's in there. It's just waiting to be used. It's like there are kind of neural tracts that are there that are for self-understanding and making sense of ourselves. When we're raised by uh, understanding moms, understanding warm moms, and they don't have to be female people, they can be any gender people, um, but the mothering person, uh, when we're raised by that kind of a person, we don't even realize that we've created a flow of self-warmth. It's just like our birthright. We're just like, ah, of course, I am warm with myself. That's how I walk through the world. But when we, when our moms have suffered trauma or um, when we've lost our moms early or if they've had uh, postpartum depression or struggle with addiction, then one of the things that can happen is that we don't get to import that warmth and understanding. And we don't make sense to ourselves because in order to make sense to ourselves, we kind of have to have made sense to somebody else. That's the most efficient way for it to happen. Sometimes we're complex humans. We find our way to self-understanding through books, which is one of the things I hope my book will do, but also, you know, through connection with nature, companion animals. When we're little, we might have like a really good teddy bear who understands us. (laughs) They kind of can help us negotiate around their not being understanding people, but understanding people kind of... uh, are really good for our brains. It's a direct, we don't have to negotiate with that at all. It just like is a direct download. Yeah, that's that's actually an excellent way of putting it because the human nature is just fascinating and neuroscience is expanding on it exponentially, which is, I think, really good for all humankind. But uh, you really dove into a lot of good neuroscience in this workbook. And uh, I love how you started the chapter one. Do you like yourself? Yes. <laughs> Big question. <laughs> good question. What is that dependent on? Uh, it's dependent on whether, you know, we would think it would be dependent on whether the people around us liked us. But what's so interesting is that if we have, for example, a mom or a dad who likes us but doesn't like themselves, we actually take on the not liking of self. Uh, Sometimes we have parents who don't like us, and then that's, of course, really difficult and causes us to have to go on healing journeys. But one of the interesting things about healing journeys is sometimes we're going, well, my parents were perfectly lovely to me why do I have these struggles and then if we start to say well what were their struggles with themselves because we we actually I mean I use the word download but we actually almost like create a clone you know how you can take a um, you can take a computer and you can copy it 
That's what our brains do. Our parents are the most important models. And we copy the way that they're using their brains and we take the way that they're using their brains on. So then like we're in this kind of a, a long healing journey for our whole family line coming to us of like, how have the people in our, my family used their brains and copied their, <laughs> their brains from generation to generation? What am I carrying that was very helpful in 1640 that is not helpful at all now? <laughs> it's fascinating how that dominoes. It really yeah. is. Like, how does that happen? Why does that happen? And I, and I think the universe is still trying to figure it out. Uh, but... Tell us, tell us, these neural connections that we all have, that we all need to work at, we never stop learning. Why is it so important to feel understood and how does that change our neural connections? Well, the, the pathways that create immune strength and emotional well-being are precisely the pathways of self-understanding and of understanding of others. It's, there's a kind of a linkage that gets created in the neurons between the right prefrontal cortex and the right limbic system, the right amygdala. And this linkage, it turns out, as people study it, is extraordinarily key, essential for well-being. The better that linkage is, the more secure attachment people have, the better health they have, the longer lives they live, the more they're able to counteract the effects of really intense things like poverty or child abuse. So the more that we have these neurons that, that say, yes, 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 Diane, you make sense. Yes, Sarah, you make sense. The more that we are able to keep our amygdalas calm. The amygdala is the, is the emotional sort of hearth, the fire of, the, of, of our emotions. And when the amygdala gets all fired up, it sets off a cortisol reaction in the human body where we're like mobilizing all of our resources to try to deal with the stress that we're under. And when we have these neural connections, that hold and nestle and calm the amygdala like a little baby or a little animal, then what happens is we don't have to shift into the cortisol system in order to deal with stress. People do it without even realizing they're doing it when they think of somebody that supports them, when they love somebody, when they, when they can think of someone and have them with them. So if you have like a partner or a friend or a companion animal and you think of them and you can tell you get calmer, that's this, that's this system, this stress man or relational stress management system that's very different from the cortisol <laughs> stress management system. Yeah, just, I mean, so, so true. You know, our imagination is sometimes can't tell the difference between <laughs> fact and fiction. Um, you had this really good quote in your book from a Canadian epigeneticist, and I wasn't really sure how to pronounce his name. Is it? Oh, Sheaf. 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 Okay. So you quote him and saying, every cell in your prefrontal cortex carries the signature of the presence or absence 
of your mother, that one huge juggernaut of influence. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true. The way that we, I was just looking at this for a class I'm teaching on Tuesday, the way that all of the things that the prefrontal cortex does for us, it's going to do those things for us in the way that my mother, that our mothers did them for them, for herself, or, um, or uh, it's going to, to do them in the way that our mothers did this for us, or if we've been doing if we've been listening to your show, if we've been on our healing journey, then we start to have new neural influences that kind of like our mother upgrades as we do our healing journey where we're kind of, we're getting mom 2.0 in there. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so like when you think of your mom, you can think, okay, did she have empathy for herself? Did she have empathy for me? There has to be a yes, yes, in order for there to, in order for that part of the prefrontal cortex to do a good job for us. Did, did our, was our mom able to manage her fear? Was she ruled by fear or was she really doing okay with fear? Was she okay with cortisol? Was she okay with us? Was she okay for herself? These are the kinds of questions we can begin to ask that start to reveal some of the secrets that are uh, embedded in these neural connections and the way that we try to take care of ourselves or are unable to take care of ourselves. Wow, that's that's fascinating. You know, and I like that leveling up analogy, Mom 2.0. <laughs> but the yes, yes connection is is important, isn't it? And and in order to to reframe things. So let's dive into the nuts and bolts of healing from trauma and how that healing connects us to those new levels of unconscious contracts. Um, when, When we're healing from trauma, one of the things we need to know is that we're having intrusive memories because the amygdala, which is that emotional fire center of the brain, has no sense of time. It doesn't have any time stamping devices at all. So for example, if we were bit by a dog when we were three and we're walking and a dog suddenly lunges at a fence barking, then our amygdala is gonna think we're in trouble the way we were when we were three years old, even if there's like a safe fence separating us from the dog, we'll get like a you know jolt of adrenaline and, and uh, uh, just have to really manage our, our fear and our discomfort. The amygdala doesn't know that it's been 57 years since we were three years old and that there's a, that there's a fence there. So, uh, and this happens with people too, like we'll have a partner and the partner will do or say something that really reminds us of our mom. And we'll go, our amygdala will just suddenly believe that the partner has become the mom. There's no... It's like there's time has not elapsed. This person is our important person and they're doing the same thing that mom did. So the amygdala doesn't know that time has passed. And when we have intrusive memories, it's the amygdala saying, here's a memory that hasn't that that has not been completely processed for me. 
And so part of what we do with, with this particular approach to working with trauma, there are many approaches to working with trauma. I often think of it as an orange, you know, how there's the white stuff that's around the orange and you peel the orange and then you open the orange and there's that core of white stuff that's in the middle. I often think of trauma healing as a core of stuff in the middle of the orange and all of the different sections of the orange have their own way of getting there. Like you can go that path through Sarah Payton's work with your resonant self. You can walk that path with um, Peter Levine's somatic experiencing. You can go on that path with EMDR. You can go on that path with, um, with other somatic types of uh, work. You can go that path with traditional talk therapy. You can do it with CBT. You can do it with... So uh, there, there's all different ways of getting to that central healing place. And the way that I love to work and that has some wonderful research that shows its efficacy is to do what I call time traveling. So we time travel to the part of ourself that lived through the difficult event. And, and we just imagine ourselves arriving there, completely understanding, completely warm, completely respectful of the part of ourself that has had the difficult experience. We freeze time, we stop the harm, we get rid of whoever's causing harm, just skylift them out into the ocean or take them to a safe place or whatever we need to do to make the space safe. And then we, we connect with that self and we have a resonant dialogue with the past self, a dialogue where we're asking, you know, what are you feeling? Are you feeling, are you feeling afraid? Do you need acknowledgement that you stopped breathing? Are you so worried about the other people involved in this? Do, are you afraid this will never stop? You know, just all kinds of questions that let the past self say yes or no, and, and give us a little more information about how their body's doing so that we can hold this emotional experience and allow it to unfold and find the emerging truths and find any unconscious contracts that are kind of hanging out in here. So um, I was working with somebody the other day and they, they had the experience of the, the, um, the family being immensely dangerous. And, and they, they made a contract with themselves to be very, very cynical so that they would be able to always be on guard at all times and that they could kind of keep this edge of uh, distance from the horrors that were happening in the family. So they had this agreement with themselves to be cynical, to be distant, to be apart from what was going on in order to survive it. And did they still want the vow? You know, when it got down to it, they're like, no, this is not a contract that I need anymore. My life is not dangerous the way it was when I was a little one. I don't need to keep myself away from my life in order to participate in it now. I can be here. So they released their contract and had a relief, a feeling of relief in their body. Jeez, I feel a relief just listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, they just let it go. They just let it go. And those those crazy memory tangles of the amygdala, I tell you. Um, so you, you touched 
base briefly here, uh, you, you know, because you have so many great tools in this workbook and, and in your books in general. And the time travel journey, you, you talked about that. Um, <laughs> what, what are the different levels in the time travel journey? Well, the first is really important. It's, it has to do with getting consent to go and making sure we establish trust with the past self. Because if we just go plowing in there without asking consent, we may be kind of replicating the original trauma to some degree. So we really want to have a lot of gentleness and respect for our younger selves. And then if they're like, yeah, I really would like you to be here, well, then we know it's okay to come and do the work. So the first thing is to establish trust. And then the next thing is to, is to be with the body of the past self. And sometimes people feel the bodies of their past self. Sometimes they see the body of their past self. They see that, that they're all curled up in a ball or they see that they're, um, that they're lying stiff like a plank or they see that they're, um, that they're caught in, you know, mid-breath without being able to breathe. And, and we use those cues of how the body of the past self is doing to do a resonant dialogue that allows the body to begin to relax. And as the body relaxes, the body actually, the past self actually starts to meld with the present day self. And there's a return. And we can do this consensually and, and explicitly too. We say, would you like to, you know, I came back for you because this was too hard for you. This was, it was too hard for anybody to be alone in this situation. I don't want you to be alone with this anymore. That's why I've come back for you. Do you want to come to present time with me? Do you want to come to present time with me and be with me? And that's the return to present time. It kind of replicates the hero's journey in a way, the call to adventure, the res initial resistance. I don't want to have this memory. I don't even want to think about the past. And then the willingness to go, the travel, the resonance, the relaxation and the invitation to return and then coming back to present day self and integrating whatever wisdom, life energy we want, we picked up on our journey. Well, I absolutely love that. And I wish we could all take that time travel journey yeah. <laughs> a little easier sometimes. Um, what about the time travel into our parents' lives? You have another quote there from Moshe Zeff that goes to say, our mother is in every cell of our prefrontal cortex. And I'm curious how our parents, depending on what age you're at, what stage you're at in your life, uh, will depend on how old your parents are. But some of us have parents that have lived through wars. Some people are immigrants that have left worn, torn countries not too far past. How, how does that really imprint on the next generation? In so many different ways, they're still discovering these imprints that travel from generation to generation. One of the interesting things to remember is that when our when our mother was a fetus inside of our grandmother's womb, the eggs that are for, that form us were forming. So we were cells inside of our grandmother. 
we carry to some extent the sense of the way that our grandparents' lives were. And they're just starting to do some research that's fascinating and very odd about how sperm carries uh, experience, experiential knowledge into the, into the fertilized cell. And that we receive information from our father's side as well as from our mother's side. And so this is one way it's often the epigenetic transmission of experience and memory. Again, Moshe Jif, he says, in the next 30 years, we are going to be able to tell the history, the family history of, of the family's re relationship with external events by looking at the protein sheath of our DNA. That we'll be that it that 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 historical traumas leave legible marks on the protein sheath of our DNA. We just haven't learned to read those yet. Sort of like trees have markings. You know, when you cut down a tree, you can see what years were good years and what years were very were dry years, or or and and that's what we can see with with the DNA with with the protein sheath around our DNA. It's quite extraordinary. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That, that is really quite interesting. Epigenetics. Yeah. I mean, it's at the, it just seems that it's, it's just getting going, doesn't it? But yeah, that, yeah. That, is, that is fascinating. And isn't it cool to imagine that, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that happens for folks who are adopted and don't get to trace their birth families. So they don't get to know what the family what the birth family inheritance is. But now, you know, in the next 30 years, Moshe Jeeves says we'll be able to look and see and tell what our families have lived through. Or if we have parents who won't tell any stories at all. You know, I so often have clients who are like, my mother would not tell me a thing. I don't even know what country her parents came from. And so um, that the ability to begin to it's it's our it's our inheritance it's our heritage it's really wonderful for us to be able to to know and have warmth for our for our ancestors and integrate them so that's one way that traumas get transferred another way is this sort of brain replication thing that we're talking about and how the patterns of trauma get stamped and carried forward yeah. right right yeah no definitely so you go on to say in your work book, you, you pose questions at the beginning of chapters, and I really like that. But the next chapter posed a question, how do I take care of myself? How mm. do you take care of yourself when you're moving from self-sabotage to self-care? Well, so often when we look at this idea of self-care, there's a list of things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take a bubble bath. We're supposed to have lavender on our pillow. We're supposed to, we're supposed to make sure that we have nourishing food. We're supposed to go for walks in, in the nature. All these things that we're supposed to do to take care of ourselves. But the most important element of self-care has nothing to do with what we do for ourselves and everything to do with how warm we are with ourselves. So it's sort of like instead of self-care doing, there's a movement to self-care being. 
And it's just like we, we're just with ourselves wherever we are, whatever we're experiencing. And we're kind of wrapping, we're wrapping Diane in warmth, if that's respectful and if it feels good and if we have consent and we're wrapping Sarah with warmth, if that's respectful and feels good and we have consent. We're just like, you rock girl, you go. And there's this real sweetness to that. It's an entirely different kind of self-care that we don't talk about very much. No, I like that. And I love the the self-warmth. Before I read your book, I had never actually heard that phrase coined. So it makes so much more sense, you know, to, to go for self-warmth versus self fill in the blank right so so what what is this relation going on in the brain because you have a sweet little parable about one side's the vines and one side's the orchid (laughs) and uh you know like the, the right rational feeling side left instrumental detailed side you know people don't really talk about left right brain any anymore but what what use use your your vines and orchids to maybe just give us the best way to tell whether we're in our instrumental brain or we're in our relational brain and how do we recognize it in others? Yeah, well, the the there's sort of a rough match between the left hemisphere and and the orchard idea and the right hemisphere and the vine idea. There's, there's kind of this, the way that the neurons are structured in the two hemispheres are different. But the hemispheres are both helping us all the time. But as Ian McGilchrist and Alan Shore say, we can be looking at the world through the left hemisphere lens, or if we're not using the words left hemisphere, then the instrumental brain's lens. And, or we can be looking at the world through the relational brain's lens. So it's almost like as you and I see each other, or if we, if we got to look at, our, at the people who are listening, then if we were looking through the instrumental brain at the people who were listening, we would be like, okay, how many people are listening? Are they giving us likes? Is this going to help in the future to reach more people? And if we're looking with our relational brain at the folks who are listening to us, then we would be like, oh my God, look at all these gorgeous people. Look at these souls. I wonder if we're getting to touch them or reach them. I wonder if we're getting to to bring what we so long to bring to them. Love, tools for transformation, sweetness, self-connection. And so then sort of, two very different ways of being with each other. And we're always kind of dancing with these two ways of being with each other. I've just been working with a book um, by Sally Weintraub, and she writes, we have a care system and we have an uncare system. So instead of saying relational instrumental, she says care and uncare. So the care system is like, look at these lovely beings who are part of our world and we're getting to touch them maybe a little bit with our words. And, um, and the uncare part is like, let's do what we need to do. Let's get through this list of questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so how, how do you get your 
uh, the, the resonating self-witness voice to override the instrumental, critical inner voice? Well, this is such a good question. In part, it's quite easy. We invite it. And we intend it. The tricky thing is that as soon as we open the door to the relational brain, we are opening the door to everything that the relational brain and the right amygdala remember about trauma that has not been healed. So it can be a little excruciating to open the door to relationality. It can come with like a dump truck load of shame, of conviction that we're not good enough, of the expectation of abandonment. There are so many after effects of trauma that are a part of opening the door to relational connection. So part of what we need is, you know, books like the books that I've written that allow us to, and people who, you know, who have some, some acquaintanceship with the journey, who, who are like, yes, of course we can open this door to connection and the things that come with it make sense and they're the after effects of trauma and of course shame comes when we try to reach out and we get to hold that with warmth and do time travel and double check for unconscious contracts and find this find our way to a, a richer life that's more filled with meaning no absolutely absolutely so Shame has been talked about quite a bit in the last few years, and there's been quite a few famous books, talks, etc., that's been out there. But how can you heal shame? Like by by identifying these broken contracts. Like what are these contracts? That how can people really make them work? Because they're contracts with ourselves, and they're yeah. in our in our subconscious. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So shame is a very interesting and important emotion. And what it's usually telling us is that in some way we are suddenly too alone. So if we think of any shame memory, then either it's a memory of us being left in some way because we're being told that we're not good enough, being left by others, or... It's a memory of us leaving ourselves because we've just acted out of integrity with our own values. So shame is the word that we give to a kind of a frozen, alarmed aloneness. And the more that we realize that shame is not true, it's trauma. So whenever we're receiving negative messages from the brain, we always want to say, it's not truth, it's trauma. So when the brain is telling us, Sarah, you are not good enough. You are really screwing up this interview. You are saying exactly the wrong things. You're not telling enough stories. You're not being coherent enough. That's, you know, the voice of my, that's my shame voice, right? And so I get to work with it. I get to, you know, do resonance for it. Voice, are you just really wanting to take advantage of this wonderful warm connection with Diane? Are you wanting to be able to reach these lovely people who are listening? Are you worried it's not happening? Do you need some acknowledgement that that you, you that sometimes what you want to do and you're able to what you're able to do are a little bit farther apart than you enjoy? 
<laughs> just you know being being kind with that voice is a very first step and it's very interesting and then the next step is like do I have a contract to beat myself up in order to be better I Sarah solemnly swear to my essential self that I will judge and analyze and criticize myself relentlessly in order to improve my performance and do better and then no matter the cost to myself. And then we get to say, Sarah, do you really want to keep that vow? That might've been a good vow for when you were little, but it's a little exhausting now. And then I might say, no, I don't want to keep this vow anymore. Sarah, I release you from this vow. I revoke this contract. And instead, and this is a very important part of the release is the blessing. What will we do instead of this? Um, maybe the blessing is when you get scared that you're not doing a very good job, can you just give yourself an emotional hug and, and, uh, and, uh, and let yourself breathe and know that you're accompanied and that you're not alone, which is a direct antidote to shame because shame is all about being left alone. Mm. No, that's that's really quite fascinating, and I love how you explain the contracts and how you can release yourself from whatever that might be, your critical inner voice, and to to continue the journey to self warmth. And um, can you can you give us an idea on expand on the different relational neuroscience concepts, the windows of welcome and the circuits of emotion and motivation? Mm. Sure. So the first one that you mentioned, the windows of welcome is easier to understand after we do the circuits. So we'll start with the circuits and then we'll go to the windows of welcome. So the wonderful work of Jak Panksepp, who was an American neuroscience researcher into emotions, who worked largely in the 20th century, a little bit in the 21st century. And he, uh, for some people know Temple Grandin's name. She's a well-known person who has autism and who's done some extraordinary work making animals feel safe no matter what circumstances they're in. And she, Jak Pongsep was Temple Grandin's major professor. But anyway, what Jak Pongsep discovered was that the same circuits of emotion and motivation that are part of all mammals' lives and all mammals' brains are also a part of all human brains and a part of all human lives. And, and as he talked about and worked with the circuits of emotion and motivation, he discerned seven different circuits. And the different circuits are like bus lines through the human brain. And so there's different buses that we're traveling on when we're feeling different emotions. And the different buses actually run on different fuels, different neurotransmitters. So the fuel for shame, which is the panic grief circuit, is the loss of endogenous opioids and the loss of oxytocin, the bonding hormone, and the increase of cortisol. So alarmed aloneness and panic grief and shame are all immensely stressful. Shame is the most stressful emotion for humans. It's the one where the most cortisol flows. 
And of course, it's a sign that we're not securely attached because the more secure attachment we have, the less we feel shame, the less alone we are, and the less cortisol we run. So this healing journey that you're inviting your listeners to go on is very much a healing journey that changes the whole brain, the whole body, the whole immune system. So I have added a circuit to Yak Pongsip. I have, with great elan and some uh, uh, um, uh, unrepentant pride, I have added a circuit to Yak Pongsip's seven circuits. And that circuit is disgust. I find disgust to be immensely important. Disgust allows us to have boundaries. It lets us know when too much is too much. So disgust is hugely important, and it's a circuit that we tend to turn off, especially if we've been abused, in order to be able to continue to maintain relationships with people who are hurting us. So it's very good to turn that circuit back on so that once we are outside of our families of origin, where people, where we were kind of stuck with people hurting us, we get to have more choice about what kinds of relationships we're in. But what happens is that for each of these circuits of emotion and motivation, the culture of our family and the larger culture of our world has ideas about how much is okay. Like, is it okay to cry? If you're a woman in the United States and in Canada, it's more okay to cry than if you're a man assigned male at birth in the United States. There's a, there's like, if you're a man, you can be angry more than if you're a woman. If you're a woman and you're angry, you get called shrill or you get called a shrew. And, uh, and so there's like this incredible balancing act for women who are appearing as public figures in the United States because there's a limited window of welcome for anger. And anger is a part of our life energy. It's a life-serving capacity for a protective force. So if we're not allowed to show anger, then we're having to turn down our whole life energy across the board in order to be able to be acceptable in our public spaces. So when there are windows of welcome that we have for each of the circuits. We can be like rabidly curious in some cultures. And in some cultures, curiosity is not okay at all. That's the seeking circuit. In some cultures and some families, we can be really playful. In some cultures and some families, it's not okay to be playful. Men are not supposed to show that they're afraid. That's a very small window of welcome for fear for men in many, many cultures. And if you're a woman, then you can have a little bit, we can show a little bit more fear culturally. So uh, it's very interesting. It's a whole world of like, how much can we do of what? Right. Well, here this day. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, you make some, some amazing aha moment breakthrough points here because the cultural differences, how you're raised um, just from tradition and what's expected of 
the different genders and and how <laughs> how you can reveal yourself to the world it, it it's really quite diverse across our globe and i'm really glad you talked about those windows of welcome in such detail because i feel that it it might be a root of of some people's anxiety how they you know you you have five five contracts of anxiety and, 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 you know, which leads to fr- frustration. And so how, how does this resonant um, language be your best medicine in those five different contracts? Um, Yak Pongsep again, identified that when mammals feel anxiety, we don't know which circuit it's on. It could be on the panic grief circuit and it could be on the fear circuit. We most often culturally think that our anxiety means that we're afraid of something, not realizing that we can be anxious when we're lonely, or we can be anxious when we've lost a person, then then there can be a tremendous sense of anxiety. So, um, So one of the ways to work with anxiety is to begin to identify which circuit it's on. And our resonant language can often help us begin to identify which circuits it's on. So we can, for example, kind of feel into our anxious self and we can say, anxious self, do you need acknowledgement of alarmed aloneness? And then we can, we can see if there's a yes or a no. And if, our bo- if we say yes, and our body starts to feel a little bit better and the volume on the anxiety gets turned down a little bit, then this will mean that, that, the, that the anxiety is partially on the panic grief circuit. And if we say alarmed self or anxious self, do you need acknowledgement of fear? And the alarmed self, the anxious self says yes. Yes, I'm very afraid. Yes, there are financial um, balls in the air that I'm afraid aren't going to come down in the right places. Um, my my uh, workplace is under threat. My um, There's crumbling in the foundation of my home. Of course I am afraid. And then we're starting to identify with our words, words as medicine telling us kind of which direction to go in for resonance for the self with anxiety. So those are the two, that's the biggest and most important starting point for anxiety. Another, another uh, wondering, another contract that can be at play in anxiety is um, almost a cellular contract because if we're ill or if we're sick or if our system is out of balance, it disrupts the endocannabinoid system. And when the endocannabinoid system is disrupted, it's speaking to a disruption in the homeostasis of the entire body. So that's the third thing to say, you know, I feel anxious, am I really healthy? Is everything really balanced? Then um, the fourth thing is, am I being torn between two authorities? Am I being, am I, trying to um, to unify and integrate the world of my mother and the world of my father. 
um, for example, like on a cellular level, am I being disrupted by these pulls between two very important people? Or was I raised in a religion that is counter to the prevailing world? Am I torn between the authority of my childhood religion and the authority of whatever the news services and, and dominant cultures sources are that I'm in relationship with? These things can create a very deep anxiety for the body. And then there are other minor anxieties that can come with disruptions of the other circuits. So for example, if there's a disruption of the disgust circuit, there can be a feeling of anxiousness. Or if there's a disruption of the rage circuit, there can be anxiety. So there, that, but that's much less often. The most common places that people work with anxiety very beneficially is in this question of, is it panic grief or is it fear? Because I've always thought it was fear, but actually what happens? when I acknowledge alarmed aloneness. Wow, you know, that is, that, that's quite actually fascinating that there's so many different levels of anxiety that we can go put ourselves through. And I'm glad you added disgust to the big picture in the, <laughs> in the circuits of emotion and motivation, because I feel that when you're disgusted about something, it can work for you or against you. You can get angry and use that anger for, you know, powering through um, or, you know, you know, so how, how do you embrace the power of anger, the, the wisdom of anger and in dealing with these different levels? Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier that if women are told that they're not supposed to display any anger in public. They have to, you know, figure out how to get all their life energy turned down. What Yak Pongsep says is he says that there's no way to just selectively turn down our rage. That the only way that people have found to control rage medically is by uh, sort of numbing the whole system out. And this is a really interesting piece of being a mammal, a puzzle, a puzzle piece of being a mammal, is that we need our ang anger and we need our rage. And we need to be capable of taking protective action and, use, and using protective use of force and, and advocating for injustice to be resolved or for the planetary global climate crisis to have significant action taken, we are um, handicapped. We are, um, we are diminished without access to the life-serving quality of rage. But anger and rage are often linked for people with trauma. And people often have contracts not to allow themselves to be angry because They've seen anger hurt people and they don't wanna hurt anybody. So they'll do what they can to create a sense of, um, of, of safety from that rage or anger. And 
uh, and so once we begin to release the contracts that have the anger bound, uh, and we start to understand and differentiate harmful anger from life-serving anger, then what we start to discover is the most extraordinary thing, which is that when our anger is linked with our love, it's much more manageable. So when we get really angry, if we figure out what we love, what we love that's fueling that anger, is it, do we love our own life? Do we love fairness? Do we love justice? Do we love for children to be safe? Do we love for people who are in domestic violence situations to be able to get out safely? Do we love for the planet in this global climate crisis to be protected, advocated for, cared for? Is, you know, I mean, these things, as we link them, allow us to have uh, nuance and careful expression of intense life-serving and protective rage. Does this make sense, Diane? Oh, I love that. I love that because, you know, the <laughs> the planetary uh, rage should be much higher. There yeah. is too much politics, too much uh, economics taking away from people's uh, common sense. And I actually had that conversation this morning at breakfast about where I live in Canada is Calgary, and it's the sunniest place in Canada. <laughs> and we don't have any solar fields. We have oil fields. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying anything against oil fields because we all like to travel in planes, etc. Yeah. So it, it is a necessary evil that is not going to go away anytime soon. However, you know, people aren't getting angry enough for the betterment yeah. of change fast enough, yeah, you know? And uh, I think I saw a documentary by David Attenborough. He said, oh, don't worry about the planet. It'll shake us off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're the only people who are doomed here, not the planet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, it was something to that effect. But um, I, I, I see your point and it's, it's, it's so, so valid. And, you know, but you, you, the next section in your workbook goes on to say when people are under a high level of stress, and maybe this is related to it or not, but they become immobilized. Oh, yeah. You know, so how I, I like how you use this to expand on the effect of the nervous system, how it fight, flight or freeze response. But Immobilize is a much better terminology. So tell us the difference between being immobilized from being disassociated. Yeah. Oh, what a great question. Such a tender question for all of us who have experienced dissociation. Um, uh, this is the work of Stephen Porges, who uh, wrote a book called Polyvagal Theory. And he has, but that's a hard book to read. <laughs> so I much prefer to recommend the book by Deb Dana about polyvagal theory and therapy. She's a wonderful book, a wonderful speaker. And, um, and what, what Stephen Porges has discovered is that we 
is that what we traditionally called freeze is a state of extreme slowness of the nervous system. So like right now, you and I, Diane, if we feel safe and warm with each other, our nervous systems are traveling at a rate of 120 meters per second. We're getting lots of information from our bodies about how each other are doing, from our facial expressions. We're able to see each other. We're able to respond to each other. And this happens like really fast, 120 meters per second. But if one of us gets really scared, if one of us, if one of us becomes um, triggered by something from the past, we might go into a freeze state or an immobilization state. And that would mean that our nervous system all of a sudden would fall from going at 120 meters per second, would fall down to two meters per second. So the mobilization experience is a bit of a shock for our nervous systems. Our heart rates can fall up to 60 beats a minute when we move into immobilization. And dissociation is... Uh, is a lot of what happens in immobilization. And there are different kinds of dissociation. It depends on where the endogenous opioids are hitting the brain. So we can have, we can have dissociation in the prefrontal cortex and kind of lose our capacity to think. We're still kind of immobile, we're reacting, but we're, we're not able to think anymore. We can't get words. Or sometimes the, the endogenous opioids hit the, the brainstem. And when they hit the brainstem, then we get this different kind of dissociation, which is the one where we leave our bodies, or we have a sense of like being really floaty. It's not just about not being able to have cognition. It's like a full body experience of not quite being in the body anymore. And these things will happen when we're really scared or when we're shocked by sudden alarmed aloneness or when we're flooded with anger and we have a vow against it or flooded with disgust and we have a contract or a vow against it. And we're just like, it's like we've blown our fuses and it's, and then there we are at two meters per second with all these endogenous opioids floating around and we're just going, oh, I'm not coping. I'm not in my body. I can't feel my feet on the floor. So this is the way that dissociation works for us. It's trying to take care of us. Sometimes we get tired of it, but it's really trying to save us. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I think you're one of the first persons I've ever heard freely speak about how we have this disconnect when we're under the stress. Where I mean, it could even while we're dreaming, you can start floating, right? Because yeah. your imagination just goes wild and. I sometimes think people don't think that's normal, but I'm, I'm glad you brought some normalcy to to how that all works. And that's, it's so fascinating. But I had an aha moment in your workbook when I reached the relational neuroscience concept of attachment and the Goldilocks story. Oh. <laughs> what... What does this stem from? And, and what are the different attachment styles? Well, I'm just so interested. What was your aha experience before I start talking about it? 
Well, I just never made the correlation between, you know, the the fable of Goldilocks, which actually oh. had some really, really juicy tidbits in it. It's a sweet <laughs> little story, but when you dive deeper, it's like, you know, hot, too hot, too cold, just right. Mm-hmm. And then when you made the correlation with the relationship, uh, relational neuroscience concept, I'm like, of course, oh, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I always before I started to discover uh, the world of attachment, I was always like, "What is the point of the Goldilocks story?" <laughs> and then I then I discovered attachment, and I was like, "Oh, there's a big point to the Goldilocks story." So what happens with attachment is that the way that we're using our brains to look through the instrumental lens, or the way we're using our brains to look through the relational lens at our children or at our partners determines how their nervous systems respond to us. So if we're a mom and we're seeing our child and ourselves as functions, like, okay, I need to change the baby. I need to, I need to feed the baby. I need to change the baby. The baby needs a nap. The baby needs to be exactly this temperature. The, the, the baby needs to play for 20 minutes, I need to, um, to clean the house, then we're looking at the baby as something to do. Again, remember our being self-care and our doing self-care. We have also being baby care and doing baby care. And most of us trying to survive in today's very stressful world, most of us who become mothering people, are forced in in many ways, forced into using that instrumental brain to try to get things done so that we can take care of the rest of the family, take care of the house, do the work, whatever it is that needs to happen. We live in an immensely pressured and stressful world. So that then has an impact on whether our baby is experiencing herself or himself or their self as a soul or as a job, a job to be done. And if a baby is experiencing themselves as a job to be done, they don't expect relationality. And in not expecting relationality, they actually create a kind of an insulation in their nervous system that keeps their nervous system from being disappointed by there being no souls they're only being functions and jobs. And this is called avoidant attachment. And when we experience it as babies, we grow up and we recreate it with our partners and our friends and also with our companion animals. If we were treated in that way as a little baby, then we're very, very likely to have avoidantly attached dogs and cats. It's quite extraordinary the way in which we share so much as mammals with the other species that live on this planet with us. So if on the other hand, there's a lot of relationality, but not much ability to manage stress, then that takes us into what's called ambivalent attachment. So in avoidant attachment, the attachment system is hypoactivated, it's underactivated. In ambivalent attachment, we're always trying to get calm by making everybody else around us be calm. 
And that's hyperactivation of the attachment circuits. So here we're seeing the Goldilocks story. Too cold, avoidant attachment. Too hot, ambivalent attachment. Just right, secure attachment or earned secure attachment if we didn't get to have it with our moms and we're building it through doing the kind of work that you offer on your podcast. So so here we are in our Goldilocks story. Is, is our world too cold? Is our world too hot? Is our world just right? If it's very unpredictable, then we can be moving into disorganized or traumatic attachment. And most people have bubbles of disorganization or trauma within a, a larger kind of majority sense of one of the three organized types of attachment. Well, and that's what's so fascinating about your workbook, because it takes you on a journey to that equanimity, to that balance, to find that sweet spot in your life that you're, you're trying to, to find. But, you know, um, the, the other item that I thought was interesting in that regard was that what our parents lived through when they were children what we live through, and then the enormity of it all. And you give this golden nugget that says we can gradually heal over mm. time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Our brains change. As soon as we introduce resonance and warmth and respectful, warm understanding, our brains start to change. Yeah, so it's, I, I know life isn't always sunshine and lollipops, but I, I think it's important that people understand there, there is hope, there, yeah. is, there is a pathway, and, and you've provided an, an excellent one, and this, the stress that the whole world's been going through, though. I know. I'm, I'm, this is, okay, so uh, you give some great examples about the aftershock of, of trauma in our lives, and you know, how people live through different things and how that exponentially folds through a, a time travel. <laughs> so, so you say a factor as well, but what is going to happen with this worldwide pandemic we've all been living through? What, what, what is the aftershock, the trauma? You might already be seeing it. I, I'm not sure. Wow. Um, I think there's... There's a, a movement into a kind of avoidance that we're that we've all had to try to make it with less uh, relational connection than we've been used to, which always takes people into insulating their nervous systems. So there's so that there's a lot of talk about increased rates of depression and anxiety, which both of which come from insulated nervous systems, not, not having other nervous systems to be able to reach out to and, um, and having to deal with alarmed aloneness and also the decrease in the sense of meaning. When we insulate our nervous systems against the um, shock of nobody being there, we're also insulating our nervous systems against the highs of, of life, the, the meaningful experiences of life, the beauty of life the the um, the wonders the awe that is a part of being alive on this planet 
So, so I think that what we'll be working with is like, how do we return to, to an even better security than we had before we started? How do we name what's happened with truth and compassion so that we can move into earned secure attachment with ourselves and with others? Right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit worried about the long-term effects this is going to have on the next generation. You know, oh, yes, young children. Yes. I mean, the what type of effect do you think it'll have have on their brains, their development, their ambition? You know, how how they perceive the world to be. Yeah. What a good question. And to kind of come back and circle around and include our previous wondering about climate crisis. What kind of a world are we giving them? We need to give them a better world. We need to bring as much resonance as possible to, to acknowledging their experience and, and decreasing the insulation that's around all of our nervous systems and move into relationality and care for our planet and our fellow species <laughs> and, our, and our little children. Yes, I'm very interested in what kind of, how they, what this effect will have and how they'll do and how resonance can help them. You know, resonance probably can help them because I'm, I'm hearing of more and more cases of, of depression. And honestly, when mm. I was growing up, I, I don't remember anybody being depressed, but nobody ever talked about it. So yeah. <laughs> tell us, what are the two flavors of depression and What's the journey with the self-warmth meditations? So what is the journey out of this depression, the two flavors? Well, what Pengsep tells us is that the that depression comes from a blockage of the seeking circuit. So it totally makes sense that for everybody who the pandemic has blocked or for everybody who the global climate crisis is blocking, that, that, that there's an impact on the seeking circuit and on our sense of hope and agency. And so part of the recovery from depression is warm accompaniment of the self. And then with the warm accompaniment of the self, discovering how the seeking circuit has been blocked. Has it been blocked by trauma? Is it blocked by an unconscious contract? Does it just need more accompaniment? And as people investigate this and work with this, then the, they unblock the seeking circuit and gradually kind of find their way to more community, more connection, more hope. And, and that's one of the major ways that people begin to heal from, from depression is through this path of self-warmth and unblocking. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, and you know, we touched briefly before about uh, the numbing process. <laughs> so yeah. that helps people cope rather, not a great word, but you know, the, I found it fascinating that when I went through your chapters on addictions, there seems to be one common denominator affecting all the circuits of emotions and motivation and that one factor was alcohol yeah yeah why, yeah. why? it's a, it's it's like a it's like a, a 
medicine for humanity for every emotional ill it doesn't help in the long term but it helps all the circuits in the short term <laughs> but perhaps because it frees people for expression and i think maybe because it unblocks contracts mm-hmm. so then people don't have they're not blocked by their contracts so then they can have hope have agency have expression have their feelings unfortunately it doesn't carry through to when we're sober <laughs> well if you know out of all the vices that are are out there um it's it seems to be the the one go to yeah. in, in the big picture and, and again with this pandemic i I fear it's gotten worse. I mean, you know, when the pandemic first hit, I was hearing all kinds of people. <laughs> it was five o'clock somewhere, right? So, yeah. but but you get you go into the neuroscience of this. You go into the 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 addiction. I'm not pronouncing this right. Nucleus acumens power. Yeah, the nucleus accumbens. Yeah. Accumbens. Thank you. And then once once it's been established, you know, you've got this new habit, you've got this new pattern, you've got this new go-to yeah, drug of choice. Yes. Right. You know, <laughs> then there's another little factor that comes into play and that keeps the addiction going, the dorsal lateral striatum. I'm not yeah. sure that's the right yeah. word. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really would love to hear more about how the neuroscience makes those connections, begins the habit, trains our unconscious mind to that is our solution. But then we have this other little devil that keeps it going. Yeah, yeah. The um, the nucleus accumbens is a little like a jackpot machine at the at the casino. And when we do the substance that has solved our brain problem, whatever it is, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamines, coffee, cigarettes, sugar, whatever it is, um, uh, then what happens is that, uh, the, that that jackpot goes ding, 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 ding. It's like, yes, three cherries. You have won the jackpot. And it releases the flow of the, of whatever the missing neurochemical is and there we are we we have this temporary and very powerful solution to our brain problem and then the whole the whole dorsal striatum the entire sort of complex of brain areas get involved to create a flow of dopamine so that we're always searching 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 for our addiction and this is a huge part of every addict's life experience is the continual hunt for the substance that will provide the momentary and always growing less momentary, always, uh, always becoming you know, less effective uh, over time, the, the relief that they found through the substance because the brain responds to whatever the substance is and tries to create a balance. So if we overdose, not overdose, but over, uh, if we flood the brain with uh, dopamine, which is what happens with methamphetamines, then the brain stops creating um, dopamine by itself. It, It retracts the dopamine receivers and 
and all of a sudden we're left with you know with with methamphetamines we get 14 times as much uh, dopamine as we had to begin with that's quite a sense of euphoria but then after we've been using the methamphetamine the brain stops producing dopamine altogether in an effort to create balance and then people who are coming off of methamphetamines will have like a nine month period where they have to deal with an absolutely gray and meaningless world in order to begin to grow back their own natural dopamine system. So it's quite an intense effort that our brain is making both to resolve the, temp the brain problem temporarily with substances or behaviors or to balance the brain in the face of whatever the solution is that we've found that disbalances the brain by flooding it. So it's quite a complex experience, the experience of being addicted. And we need a lot of right hemisphere resonance and care in order to be able to kind of not have to live in the addicted part of the brain because there are other parts of the brain that provide uh, antidotes and different ways of living that we can kind of move into in our sobriety processes. But it's, a, it's, quite a, it's, it's got quite a lot of gravitational pull, the addiction process. I, I had no idea it was actually so damaging. I, I don't know obviously enough about yeah. methamphetamines and things like that, but the, the damage to our neurons, it, it just oh. it sounds frightening to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So how how do we cultivate this permaculture garden of our minds to dissolve these negative contracts, to release them and create the positive counterpart, a positive contract with ourselves? Mm. Well, that's what the whole workbook is. It's right. It's a journey that lets you do that. Yeah. Just gently, gently takes you through. There's a, um, right now uh, in the fall of 2021, sort of moving into winter of 2021, there's a class starting that goes for a whole year that takes people through the workbook if you want to have community to go with it, go through it with. And and, and so we're just, we, we just try to, if you go to my website, sarahpayton.com, there are free meditations for download and, and, uh, and all kinds of resources and classes and recordings and the other books. Yeah, how fantastic. I had no idea you, you were doing that. So that that is excellent timing for anybody who's listening to this. You got to yeah. jump on your website and, and sign up. <laughs> sign up right away. Yeah, yeah. Get, get to do the exercises with somebody else. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And I love that, uh, you know, the, the people can use this workbook to... Um, get unconscious contracts to, to step up their joy to to yeah. really reach a new level right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um i had i had uh, a couple of more questions and then and then we'll wrap things up because i think i've taken a lot of your time here today but you you mentioned shame earlier and yeah. and i just i just was curious why does that cause the largest cortisol spike of any other emotional experience for us humans because we are so exquisitely social we long to be connected to one another our bodies are made for community and family and friendship and we live in a world that has so much stress in it 
and so much trauma that's unhealed that it makes people unsafe often. So we have like this incredible drive for connection at the same time that connection is unsafe and it's so stressful for our bodies. And they, when they are excluded or experience the messages of shame that they don't belong, then there's a terrible alarmed aloneness and then that spike of cortisol that comes. It's, that, it's the circuit that it's on. Wow, no, that that is fascinating. You you do have a little additional topic in your workbook called the false Bodavista vows. Bodavista, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are really important. So many of us want to be able to save the world, and when we were eight, nine years old, we would all of a sudden realize that the world is really messed up and needs saving, but we're too little to take any real action. So we just dedicate our nervous systems to it. Like people have contracts, like I will collect every abandoned soul and hold them in my heart in order to heal the world, no matter the cost to myself. Or people have vows, I swear to you, God, or you, the universe, that I will protect all abused children in order to keep them safe, no matter the cost to myself. And when people have these vows, they end up growing up to actually try to carry them out. You know, they're workaholics for nonprofit companies or organizations or or become social workers and get burned out or um, try to become teachers and come up against the school system and discover that they can't reach the children because of the way, and, and it's a torture, it's torture. So it's very good to begin to kind of connect with the universe and say, universe, is this a good vow for me? And the universe will often say, this is not a good vow for you. I would love for you to contribute to my well-being and to the well-being of all the children on the planet. At, not at the cost of yourself, though. For you to do it with joy is what I want. Oh, I love that. I yeah. love that. And, and do you have a, a favorite mantra that you you live by? Well, I love the one that I mentioned earlier. It's not truth, it's trauma. That's a good one. Yeah. It's not truth, it's trauma. That's, yeah. Just keep that in the back of your mind, right? <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> And who, you, you've mentioned quite a few... Uh, workings during their podcast is there someone out there maybe it's a book a movie a quote who's influenced you the most on your own journey you know I think Bonnie Badenoch has really influenced me extraordinarily on my journey she actually got the first book published she wrote to Norton and said this is a great book you should publish it but before that I was studying with her extensively she's the author of being a brainwise therapist and the heart of trauma, both gorgeous, gorgeous books. And she's moved me uh, extraordinarily. I think she's just changed my life in very foundational ways. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. What is the imprint you want to leave in the world? Oh, gosh, I would love, <laughs> I would love to leave an imprint of like self-warmth is possible. And we've all got all the equipment. We just need to know how to use it. (laughs) 
It is possible. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your precious time today. I really appreciate it. And I know our mm. listeners around the world will appreciate hearing your words of wisdom. And I will be sure to leave a link in the show notes so people can find you online and, and buy your books. And oh. I'm really excited about the new book coming out. Tell me about that just briefly. Yes, the new book is Affirmations for Turbulent Times. Norton, uh, my publisher, asked me to write an affirmations book. And I was like, affirmations? I always feel like affirmations aren't authentic enough for me. I am beautiful and strong. And I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure I'm beautiful and strong. So how do I do an affirmation in a way that really feels authentic to me? So I developed a whole series of affirmations for them that's in this book, Affirmations for Turbulent Times, that has like wonderings we start with wonderings about what needs to be acknowledged and then we do the affirmation <laughs> so we acknowledge hmm, i would like some acknowledgement that maybe that, that those are not the messages that i've always received and i am beautiful and strong <laughs> that sounds like a bestseller right then and there i love that and I love that you're an inspirational leader and you want people to live a more inspired life and discover themselves. Is there any final tidbits you want to share with the audience before we mm. let them go? Just gratitude to you, Diane. Gratitude for your work in the world. Gratitude to you for reaching people. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And Thank you for being on The Flourish Show today. Live a more inspired life. <laughs>